if you're complaining, um, at least you don't live in Barrow, Alaska, okay? Uh, which is the northernmost city in the United States. Uh, and in Barrow, Alaska, the sun will not come out for another few weeks. Okay, so, so you could live there. And uh, uh, the New York Times. All cities uh, will we'll deal with craving carbs during this time of the year, melancholy, fuzzy thinking. And one way that they deal with it in this town is they have lots of celebrations where they try to get together and have light shined upon them. Uh, but many of them have bright light therapy in their own home, certain lights that um, shine uh, during what they can make out day or night, whatever it might be, to help with this seasonal affective disorder. Many are on antidepressants during this time. And many in the town make trips to Hawaii or to California to get away from Barrow, Alaska uh, during these times of the year. Well, uh, you might also uh, fall into this category here in Wisconsin where this, the light isn't out as much during this time of the year of craving carbs, of melancholy, of fuzzy thinking. Uh, you might have seasonal affective disorder. Maybe you think, well, I have those things all year round. Um, so maybe it's not seasonal. Maybe it's just who you are, craving carbs like I do, uh, that uh, you just have it all the time. Well, here, uh, when we celebrate Epiphany, it was a celebration in the early church, a lot to celebrate the time that there was much darkness uh, being in the northern hemisphere that they had this celebration of Epiphany. And it really was a, a celebration, the manifestation of God's glory and his light that came through Jesus Christ. And today we are going to see the manifestation and the glory of God's light in the book of Isaiah that's explained. And we're going to see a few things. One, how God comes into the darkness. How he sweeps in a new reality. And he gives a glory for all to see. And more than just that kind of transcendental kind of thing that happens, it's something that also affects us. How does God's light expose darkness in our own lives? How does it might, might it conquer ingrained attitudes within us? And how does his light transform us to then display his light to those that are around us. We're going to find out together, shall we? So Isaiah chapter 59 and chapter 60 we're going to look at. It's printed here in your worship guide if you'd like to follow along. I encourage you to look at God's word as we read it here this morning. Isaiah 59. Justice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him. That there was no justice. He saw that there was no man. And wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. 
and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so they will fear the name of the Lord from the west. And his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall, co shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah and all those from Sheba shall come. The word of the Lord. Well, we've been going through the book of Isaiah this fall and now here into the winter. It is a large book, 66 chapters. And sometimes, how do I get a grasp and a handle of this huge thing? It's kind of like eating an elephant. You just kind of do it one bite at a time. And that's kind of what we've been doing with Isaiah. But I think Isaiah separates itself really well. So it makes it a little bit easy to comprehend in the three sections that makes up Isaiah. The first section, chapters 1 through 39, talk about Israel before going into exile. This people and this land, specifically Judah, the two tribes, are facing enemies coming at them. And here, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to these people before they go into exile, chapters 1 through 39. And then in chapters 40 through 55, he's talking to the people that are in exile now. The people from Judah have been taken out of the land. They've brought, been brought into this place of Babylon, and they are in exile. The temple has been destroyed, and here they are in exile. That is chapters 40 through 55. And now we're in the third and last section, chapters 56 through 66. This is the post-exile. The people have come back from Babylon and have returned back to Israel. And this is what Isaiah is speaking to, the people that have come back to the land. Now, the thing is that Isaiah uses literary devices to explain the character and nature of God in these different sections 
to help comfort the people or help them deal with the issues that they're facing. In chapters 1 through 39, we see that God is illustrated as a king and as holy and set apart. And the reason it's done there is because as other kings are attacking Judah and the people are scared and afraid that their culture is going to be wiped out, Isaiah says, no, here is the king of kings. Here is a God that is set apart and that is holy. Fear him, trust in him. And that is what God has shown in chapters 1 through 39, holy and a king. And then when they're in exile, chapters 40 through 55, God is shown as a shepherd, one that comforts and helps the people when they feel lost in a way that God is a comforter and he brings hope and is God as shepherd. Now, what will God be shown as in the post-exile as they come back in chapters 56 through 66? We gotta remember, these people have been redeemed. They've been rescued. They've been brought back into the land. And here God has called, as Josh talked about last time, he's called these people that have been saved and brought back to Israel. You've been called now to be righteous. Reach out to the out crowd. Reach out to the disenfranchised that are among you. Reach out to the nations that are all around. But now what they see as the people have returned to the land, they still do not live up to their potential. They do not live the way they are supposed to be living. And now Isaiah describes the Lord as a warrior. The Lord as one that is glorious. You see, Israel continues to live in this cycle as we've seen in Isaiah, throughout Isaiah. They sin, there's judgment, they repent, and then God redeems. And the cycle goes again and again and again. Well, what will they do now that they fall into this cycle once again? What will God do? How will he come after them? When will they finally live the way they're supposed to? Will they will care for those that are disenfranchised? that they will be a light to the nations. Let's look again, shall we? Verses 14 through 15 in Isaiah chapter 59. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. This is the situation that the Lord sees um, the people in. They are morally bankrupt. There is no justice. There is no truth. Even those that try to get away from the evil, they make themselves a prey that people will come after them. This is a bad situation that Israel has once again found itself in. Come on. Isaiah must say, shouldn't this be over? Shouldn't this be done? You guys were brought into exile and then you returned. You should now live a different way that you have been redeemed. But again, you do this over and over. When will it end? When will it be over? 
As we've uh, looked in the news the past six months, many of us maybe have turned it off, but some of us might say, we're ready for this to be over. When are the shootings in the United States going to end? As we have another one in Florida this week. When is our political leaders starting stop having conflicts with each other, fighting and arguing? And just as a new Congress was brought in this week, fighting and <laughs> great rhetoric has already been used against each other. When is sexual assault going to happen on college campuses? Story after story, we see these kind of things happening on college campuses. When is the relativism of America going to end where we accept any way of life, where sexuality just becomes relativistic? You can do whatever you want as long as it pleases you. When is Wisconsin going to be stopped known as the drunkest place? As the news article recently came out, all my friends from Colorado say, Dan, you know you live in the drunkest city in Appleton? As this one article points out. I mean, I'm sure we have tons of talking points of the moral bankruptcy of America. I'm sure we can look at this passage and say, look, this is so true of us in our nation, so true of people outside of us. And I'm sure the people of Judah had the same talking points about the nations around them. Can you believe the Persian Empire and what they think about sexual ethics? Can you believe the Edomites and how they view God? Can you believe the Egyptians and their paganism and worshiping multiple gods? Can you believe the way these people live? But God isn't talking to Persia. God isn't talking to Egypt. God isn't talking to Edom. God is talking to Israel. He's talking to these people. How are you living? What are you doing? See with me. Verse 15, the latter part. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. There was no one righteous in Israel. There was no one that was living the way that they should. I'm sure some of us love to rail against America or Appleton or whatever it might be that what's out there. Say, can you believe the way they live? Can you believe the way our politicians talk? Can you believe the way people act on college campuses? But truthfully, how about our own inventory on ourselves? This is the convicting part of the sermon, so just bear with that, okay? As you look past, in the past year, and what's happened in the past year of your life? If you call yourself a Christ follower, part of his church, and you take an inventory on yourself, have you grown in graciousness this year? Are you a less bitter person than you were last year? Have you made more sacrifices for other people? 
Have you been more forgiving to those that are around you in your family or your coworkers? Has your anger subsided? Have you taken criticism better over the past year? Come on, Dan. Don't give me a hard time. I'm not on College Avenue at 3 a.m. in the morning. I'm not tweeting crazy messages out about crazy things. Come on, why are you giving me a hard time? You see, God is trying to take Israel to the next level. He's trying to get them to a place where their righteousness and their character is a light to all those around. God is not trying to make Israel to go say, oh, at least we're not them. At least we're not like them. That's not what God wants from his people. No, instead he wants transformation in them. So Israel shows the glory of who God is. And you know what? I think that's the same thing he wants of his church now. Not that we say, oh, at least we're not them. At least I'm not acting like that. No, he wants more from us than that. He wants us to show forth his beauty, his kindness, his graciousness, his light. What's it going to take? Well, it's going to take a battle. It's going to take a battle for God to do that upon Israel and upon his church. And you see, this is what he does. What we couldn't do ourselves, he strapped on and went into battle for us. Let's look together, shall we? Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. You see, uh, when clothing is put on in the Bible and the Old Testament, it, it shows forth someone's character and their nature. When Mike Daniels goes out there today, this afternoon, and he has sleeveless, right? That's what it'll be, right? <laughs> Phil, isn't he always sleeveless, Phil, Mike Daniels? He shows his character. He's tough, you know? That's what a defensive end is. When Odell Beckham slips on those really sticky gloves, he says, that's who I am. I'm um, a punk. Anyway, no, no, it was Odell. I just have to wear these tacky gloves. When Clay Matthews pours that water over his hair, he says, I'm a lion that has a tough mane and, and will, you know, take someone down. I don't know what it is, but their clothing and their character shows who their nature is and what they are. And here's what God shows his nature is. I am one of righteousness. I am one of salvation. You know, some of you might say, well, it doesn't, seems like I've read this before. Well, you have. Paul borrows this in Ephesians as he talks about us putting all the full armor of God. Well, it's God putting on this armor. Well, Paul's saying, if we have unity with Christ, then we too can put on that armor that God puts on. God is going into battle. He's going into battle against our sin, against our unrighteousness, against the relativism that has happened in Israel. He is going to battle. I love this. Uh, uh, 
he does this, uh, Isaiah does this in the book, he moves from poetry to prose. And when he moves to prose, he's trying to be more clear about what his message is. And he moves to prose in chapter 21. He says, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. So again, the idea of covenant, this is my promise with you. I promise to not abandon you, Israel. I promise to be there for you, to rescue you, that you would be my people. I have made a promise with you. And my promise is so great that when you are unrighteous, I will go to battle for you. And this is where it gets so good. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth. Now, if you don't know the Hebrew, you can't really see the change that has happened here. See, Isaiah has moved, and the Lord's language has moved from the plural you. We use that in English, right? If I was down south, I'd say you guys, or you, you know, up north, you guys, and the south, I'd say y'all. But when we say you, we don't know if we're talking to a singular you or could be a plural. Here in, in this, he's not using the plural you. He moves to a singular you. And it's not even a feminine you. As, if you know Spanish, there's the masculine and the feminine. It's not in English as much. And, and so here, the feminine you sometimes means Israel, plural, right? But no, he uses a masculine singular you. Something he hasn't used before except in talking about the servant of the Lord. Who is this singular masculine you? See it again. My spirit that is upon you, the singular person, the servant, and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. See, this is the servant of the Lord that is going to come. That will be the mouthpiece of God. That will be the light to come to us, whose message will be forevermore. He will be the champion. He will be the warrior that will fight for us. He will be Christ the King. You know, I joke about seasonal affective disorder. It's not a joking matter for some of us here in Wisconsin. For some of you, I know a couple of you have just moved here recently. I'm sorry uh, that you've come into such cold from the South. Welcome to Wisconsin. But for some of us, there is serious darkness in our lives. And it's not a joking matter. Maybe experiences in our past, injustice that family members have brought against us, or friends, or things in work that have just damaged us seriously. For some of us, there are personal demons in us that just never seem to get brought out, that just weigh on us constantly. And that's just not seasonal. It's something that we feel like this burden is carried upon us. If you're ever in Colorado, um, when it turns about March or April and you go up to the mountains, you can be there on certain days and you can see when the snow melts that the rivers move from just a trickling into power. They move so fast. And here's what it says 
So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. I want to encourage you, those that feel they live in darkness and burdens that are so heavy, they feel like, I I can't get rid of these. The Lord says, I can come as a warrior and I drive in like this stream that comes that is so powerful that can wash that darkness away. There is hope. There is a promise that God has given. And I don't want to be trite. Some of you, that, that darkness just maybe lingers and you know Christ and still it's there. I want to give you hope. Because there will be a day that will come when we will fully see the light and the glory of God. That it will be a rushing stream that is so fast. It will be the sun so bright that all that darkness and all that stuff is inside of you will be gone in an instant as he comes. Well, we've had indicatives, indicatives, things that have happened, things that have occurred. The darkness has been exposed. The battle has been fought. These are things that have been done to us. Now in chapter 60, we see it moves to the imperative. What we were supposed to do. What is our actions? Now what do we do? Look with me. Chapter 60. The imperatives arise. Shine. And back to the indicative, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. We have mer- we've moved from God as warrior to God as kabod. His glory, that very Hebrew word meaning weight, significance, heaviness. God's glory is so great His light is so powerful that it shines upon us. That Israel, Jerusalem, that Mount Zion upon a hill now becomes a shining city for all to see, for the nations to see. That is how great God's glory is. I've used this illustration before in the past as we've gone through the prophets. I haven't used it yet as we've looked in Isaiah But the prophets are like a telescope, like one of those old pirate telescopes, you know, those ones that come out like that, right? So what is Isaiah talking about? Well, he's talking about the near future. He's talking about the future to come, and then he's talking about the end of time. So we take the telescope first to see the first thing you see, just a little bit closer. He says, God's light will shine, so you, Israel, will be a light to the nations, to Rahab, to Ruth to Nineveh. Israel, even back then, you will be a light to those that are around you. But then the light goes, the telescope goes out even a little bit further. And then it talks about Christ as the light. We didn't see it here in in the passage, but in um, verse six, it says, um, the kings will come with what? Frankincense in gold. In Isaiah, it says that. That is talking about the future magi that will come from other nations to see the light that is Christ. 
You see, you take the telescope further and the light that is seen is Christ and his coming. And what happens? The nations come. We saw in the early church, the Roman Empire starts to come. Kings and nations bow at Christ as the gospel goes forward to the ends of the earth. And then you take the telescope even further out. And Isaiah is talking about the future city, the end of time. And this is a new heavens and a new earth, a future city that will be so radiant that all will be drawn to this city. This is the end of time. But I want to talk just a little bit more about this age, the age of the church The already but not yet. Not everything has been clear, but we are still a light, the church. What are we supposed to do now? It's a great article in the Gospel Coalition uh, blog this week. It talked about early church history and one thing that the early church did. The early church was a real threat to the Roman Empire. And one reason it was a threat is because they said that there was only one God. And uh, as Christians, you're not to honor the other gods of the Roman Empire. That was a threat, considering people had different gods in their homes and the different gods were worshipped throughout the Roman Empire. And these Christians that said, no, you can only worship one god, that was a real threat to the social fabric of the Roman Empire. And what would happen is that uh, people would try to, spies would infiltrate the church in the Roman Empire at that time. And uh, spies would come into the church service and find out who was in the church. And then they would tell the Roman authorities. And then the next day, all of the church might be arrested and thrown into jail. So deacons back in that day uh, would be bouncers. They would check who could come in the church and who couldn't, knowing that there would be spies. They would be worried about that. So you wonder, how did the message of the gospel go forward if they didn't have this church or that that's where it's all about or the attractional model? It says, no, what made people drawn to Christ is not just coming to church, is because these people live different lives. The Christians faced persecution and did it with compassion. They were generous to others. They were fair. They were known as the most fair people in the marketplace. They cared for neighbors And when the plagues broke out in the Roman Empire, they're the ones that cared for the people that were sick while others ran. That light that shone in the early church is what brought people to Christ in the Roman Empire and finally brought the Roman Empire into Christendom itself. Well, I think the same weirdness of the church, the threat of the church, is happening again in the United States. I don't think it's not, it's not because we don't honor all gods. It's because we don't honor all identities. We don't honor all identities. We say our true identity is not in whether we're heterosexual or homosexual, whether we identify as a man or a woman. Our true identity is in Christ. That is a threat to people outside of the church. What a great way that we can be a light 
People might see us as a threat, but we will be gracious and kind and loving to those that are around. Some of you might be coming here today not as Christians and someone maybe dragged you here today and some of you might have just real negative experiences with the church. And you might say to yourself, how can the church be a light to the world? I've seen how the church is. I see how people are. How can it be that way? I love the Screwtape Letters. It's a book by C.S. Lewis. It's an allegory about uh, an older demon talking to a younger demon how to tempt humans. And one of the great stories in the Screwtape Letters is about how to go after a guy that started going to church. And this is what Uncle Screwtape says to Wormwood. He writes this. One of our great allies at the present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I don't not, do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. No, no. That, I confess, is a spectacle which make our boldest tempters uneasy. But unfortunately, but fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished new building. When he goes inside the church, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he's been trying to avoid. You want to lean pretty heavy on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. Provided that any of these neighbors that he sees sings out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Christian, do not be fooled. The most ordinary person that might sit next to you in the pew or in these chairs, when the light of God finally shines, they will be the most radiant people, more radiant than the most radiant person on this earth now. You are sitting next to a saint. You are sitting next to someone who is identified as God's, that in eternity will be radiant that you will want to have endless conversations with. What does it mean, Christian, to shine your light, to show forth God's radiance and his glory? Maybe it's to pray for a neighbor. Simple as that. But maybe it becomes more complex then now you have to enter into a relationship with a neighbor and talk with them and live life with them. That's how easy or hard it might be. In 1974, a house came up for sale outside of the University of Wisconsin campus called University Heights, this neighborhood, a very dark neighborhood by spiritual standards. Up the hill from this house that was being for sale was a couple that was a light, a light of Christ that shined in that neighborhood, that dark neighborhood. And each day, 
that man of that house, a professor at the university, would walk to his office on the campus of the University of Wisconsin. And he'd walk by this house that was for sale. And as he walked by that house every day, he prayed for the people that might live in that house in the future. Later that year, a young couple with two kids who were flailing in their faith moved into that house. That couple on top of the hill invited them to a Bible study with one of their other neighbors. And then they invited them to church. This couple committed their lives to Christ. And four years later, they had a son who ended up marrying the granddaughter of this professor that walked by their house and prayed. That flailing couple was my parents who moved to Madison, who were very far from God. They moved from New Haven at Yale and moved there to Madison. And that couple who were on the top of that hill were John and Betty Alexander, Aaron's grandparents. Last Friday, Betty Alexander went to be with her husband, John Alexander, to be with the Lord. And a couple hundred people gathered to tell their stories of the light of this woman. And my parents were there. You see, Betty and John, they arose. They shined the radiance of the glory of God. And many came to know the love of Christ through their lives. And at the hymn we sang just this last week at the funeral, one of Betty's favorites, How Sweet the Name, it says this, Weak is the effort of my heart, and cold my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. You see, right now, Betty Alexander is with the Lord. And she is radiant and she is beautiful because she is next to the glory of God. Let us long for the day where all darkness, weakness will be gone. And we will be radiant because we will see the glory of God. And let us right now be that radiance. Let us be that light. Let us shine like a city upon a hill. Let us tell our neighbors, let us tell our friends of the glory of God, our warrior that has come and saved us and has shined upon us. And let that radiance shine upon us so that we arise and we go and tell the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for John and Betty Alexander, my grandparents, that prayed for my parents. And in through their prayers and their radiance and the light that you showed upon them, brought my parents into the kingdom. And I am thankful for it myself. God, I pray that we would too shine our lights and that we would do things that we cannot even see the ends of our actions. But we would be 
the glory of you on this earth. In your son's name we pray. Amen.